It's the Airhead 247 Podcast. The Airhead 247 Podcast, powered by Wedgetail Ignition Systems, state of the art ignition for your 247 Airhead. Proudly made in Australia by motorcyclists who love their BMWs. By the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who invite you to ride inspired. And Boxer2Valve.com, the premium supplier for all your airhead replacement parts. Now, let's get this thing fired up. Greetings, everyone. Glad to be with you once again on the program this week, part one of our conversation with the founder of Globe Riders and a trailblazer in putting the R80GS on the adventure bike map, Helge Peterson. William Plam is with us for another Tech Talk. This week, we chat about 247 transmissions. So, if I may say so, this sounds like a pretty good show we've got ahead for you this week. If you listen to us on the Apple format, please consider a rate and review there. Those are very helpful. Reminder, you can also drop us a line, anything that's on your mind, airheads247 at hotmail.com. Let us know what you like or what you don't like. We're still collecting pictures and stories for our Survivor Series, which will make an appearance soon. And of course, we always enjoy hearing from you, no matter what the subject matter. Speaking of the mail inbox, hello to David, who wrote in with some great photos of his Granada Red 75-5, a great bit of history behind this bike. It was originally purchased from Leo Cycle Sales in Memphis, Tennessee. That's an old dealership, which some of you may recall was referenced in an earlier episode with Leo Goff. And to be clear, those are two different Leos. Anyway, 77,000 original miles and original paint on this bike. Glad to hear it's still going strong, David. Thanks for writing. Also, as we mentioned here, please consider taking advantage of our free digital membership promotion with the BMW MOA. We're getting closer to our goal of 200 new members, so please support our efforts here by taking advantage of this free offer. Details on how to join in the description section of this and all our episodes. If you've been hesitating or are on the fence about joining, we can use your support. This offer is good for everyone listening in any country across the globe. All right, so this is part one of a two-part chat with Helga Peterson, who, along with Ed Culberson, was on the vanguard in establishing what was, at the time, the new R80GS as a true adventure motorcycle, pushing man and machine to limits through the Darien Gap and elsewhere across the globe. Helge's book, 10 Years on Two Wheels, recounts that journey and is available through Touratech, something you may want to revisit or check out after listening to our chat. When we caught up with Helge, it was early 2023, and he was making preparations for his last tour with Globe Riders, a company he started over 20 years ago. So, plenty to get to this time. Off we go with Helge Peterson on the Airhead 247 Podcast. Helge, thank you uh, for taking some time to chat with me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, no problem. It's been a long time coming. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, I've been persistent, so uh, I appreciate 
uh, again, you've taken some time. And let's go ahead and get started. Um, first thing I want to ask sure. you, first thing I want to ask you is, where are you sort of on currently as we're visiting here today in uh, the first part of 2023? Where are you on your Globe Riders calendar? You, I'm sure you recently finished up a tour this past year and are probably resting or starting preparations uh, for an upcoming one. So where are you on the calendar these days? There are no rest for a self-employed second uh, <laughs> tour operator. So, yeah, we finished the Africa tour uh, just in November last year, and now I'm gearing up for my last tour with Globe Riders, which will take place uh, 2nd of April in Oman. So basically I'm leaving end of March. So I'm working every day now to get this tour. It's a 73-day tour. Lot of work to get ready for. Yeah, so let me back up. You said your last tour with Globe Riders. Yes. Tell me about that. <laughs> you want the whole story? Uh, as much as no. you're willing to share, sure. No, it's, uh, you know, I started my company in uh, 98, and I did the first tour in year 2000, and it was very ambitious. Some people uh, called it stupid, crazy, whatever. I call it ambitious. And we started from Tokyo and rode to Munich in 72 days. And I had 14 people on the tour and uh, I've never done anything like it before. And we all survived. And then I kind of got that under my belt and continued. And here we are 23 years later. And I, I'd hope to retire earlier, actually, but the pandemic come along, like everybody know, and it kind of postponed things a little. So this will be the last of many tours all over the world, taking clients uh, on, on what I specialize in, uh, long tours. So obviously... When I say long tour, two months plus. And uh, Yes, and so obviously this is a, deci a decision you've made. It's not that you're hanging up the helmet, so to speak, but uh, the, the long-distance touring business and the constant calendar year of work and riding and rinsing and repeating, so to speak, uh, that will be, uh, in essence, coming to an end uh, with this last tour then. Yeah, like my friends and clients, they say, what are you going to do when you retire, Helge? Well, Lisa and me are going to start traveling. <laughs> and it's like, you know, I've been working, traveling. And uh, I want, would like to, uh, and I loved it. I'm, please do not misunderstand. I, I love my work. I've been very fortunate in life being able to guide people and introduce them to uh, other things that they didn't have courage to do themselves and uh, help them on the way and many taking off on their own after that, so on and so forth. But uh, I just turned 68. Uh, health is still good. And Lisa and me, we want to do something just for ourselves. Kind of going back, it's like full circle. I started out traveling by myself. And now I have uh, Lisa in my life too. And we would like to do something. And that would be include motorcycle travel, definitely. Sure. Uh, do you also uh, envision yourself maybe 
slowing down a little bit and just not working as much and relaxing? Or are you kind of hardwired in the sense that you're constantly working and always going to a next project? I do like projects, but uh, doing the Globe Registers is more than I'm uh, liking anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, what I'm saying, I'm sitting every day now with spreadsheets, dozens and dozens of emails that you need to be attended to every day. When I retire, I see it more like, it's okay to sleep in today. Well, let me get my kayak out. And let, oh, let's <laughs> jump in the sidecar and go over and visit somebody at the other side of to Canada. You know, no one committed to uh, 20 people we will be on this upcoming trip. And it's a lot of responsibility. Uh, they pay a pretty penny for it. And... Uh, it's a 73-day day tour uh, uh, that people have a lot of expectations for, and I have a lot of commitment there. Then I'm not going to let them down. I'm going to do my very best for that to be the and fantastic experience for them. Indeed. So, uh, 23 years. That's I mean, that's a long time doing this. Uh, how how is the how is the experience uh, with Globe Riders? changed and evolved over the years? I mean, you mentioned your first trip, uh, and I'm sure yeah. it was smaller, a uh, group, uh, less ambitious. Uh, but how, how, is the, how has the travel evolved, and how has the, has the company evolved over the years? I'm curious. You know, I, I think I disagree a little with your assessment there, because when I, were, when I started Globalize and did the first tour, I talked to other like Skip Mascoro at Moto Adventura, uh -huh. uh, which is no uh, Pancho Villa Moto, no Moto Discovery, as you say. I'm sorry, uh, uh, which used to be Pancho Villa Moto Tour, and he was a great inspiration, and uh, I learned a good mentor, and I worked a few years for him. And like he said, you can't do two months. Uh, you're going, you guys are going to kill each other halfway and stuff. So it was really an ambitious. And I have a lot of naysayers that, uh, no, you can't, you can't, you can't. Mm -hmm. But I've had that in my life. And I think it kind of shows a little of my character that when people say no, I double down and uh, prove that I can do it. And I do it with pleasure, too. I mean, I'm, I feel thrilled about achieving things that other people say you can't do, within reason, of course. So, yeah, starting out, it was pretty scary, and it got less intimidating as I went out. Of course, the tour involved to other things. I learned a lot. I learned that I have no business degree. I have lost money. I worked <laughs> for tennis on tours, and I have made good money. So, you know, it was a, has been a roller coaster, but it has evolved. Obviously, I've gotten better. Uh, one of the things that I really like with the tours we do is that we take off in the morning and we see, hope to see you at the next destination. And everybody is using their maps, their GPSs, and it opens up for individual travels. Usually I like to see people two or three, but not more than three in a group of bikes. I feel that's dangerous. Uh, very much so. Uh, and I'm glad, I'm glad to hear you say that. And I, re I recall watching uh, some videos, some older Globe Rider videos. I think I came across them on Amazon um, or something. Uh -huh. And they were from a, a number of years ago. Uh, but I do recall even that being part of the experience of the ride and hearing you mention that 
uh, to some of the other riders is, yeah, we're not riding in a group. Uh, you just need to be at this place around this time. We'll see you there. Have fun. And that I love that aspect about uh, how you put the tour together and let folks experience those rides in those unique places that way. That's very true. And that's one of the things that when I started to play with the idea of getting into being a tour operator, I was seeing this Donald Duck team, you know, going like ducks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, met, I remember I met, met some Germans in Patagonia, and they were like that. They had the chase vehicle in front, one in the back. Well, no, there was a motorcycle in front, one in the back, it was the chase vehicle. And it was dusty, and they were just sitting on the tail of each other. And I think, what is fun about that? Yeah. I couldn't see it at all. So, yeah, I know. I like the individual and you know, and then you have you get together at night. You have the camaraderie. You have the luxury of coming to a, hopefully a nice place, but that there is too. But getting a nice shower and have a meal provided for you, and you can relax and share stories. And it's amazing how different we experience one day, which we all should have seen from my eyes. Well, this is how I saw it. Why should you see it different? Well, we all see it so different and. It kind of makes you open your eyes a little wider and see at other aspects of travel through the eyes of your fellow travelers. Yeah, you know, that's a great point you bring up. I can imagine the end of the day uh, discussions at at the dinner rendezvous or the hotel are really engaging and, engaging and exciting for everybody. Uh, because as you said, yep. maybe not everybody took the same route or they have a different story or they stopped and met somebody, or whatever the circumstance was, uh, that makes for some fun uh, conversation at the end of the night. Uh, one thing I want to ask you about, uh, considering how often uh, you've done this and all the different tours and places you go, and let me parenthetically add, thank you for sending the, the map uh, uh, with uh, the red lines of everywhere uh, you've been uh, across the globe. I'm sure you're familiar, maybe, with the Johnny Cash song, I've Been Everywhere. Yeah, I, I know it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I mean, that was just the first <laughs> thing that came to mind. But anyway, I'm curious to know, are there border crossings, um, ports of call, places that when you show up on your motorcycle, you're seeing... Uh, a guard or somebody who's been there for 15, 20 years and you sort of, they recognize you and you have a quick conversation. Nice to see you again. I imagine you have made not only friends, but also just sort of casual acquaintances and and people like that across the globe. I'm curious about some of those. Yeah, there are many stories like that. And, and I see it as... Uh a good investment into uh, your business is to make good friends on the border. <laughs> yes. But when you come there, and you can imagine if we are like uh, 15, 20 bikes, and sometimes we uh, we have to get together at the border because we are going to, our partner has a new chase vehicle or we need to do it. It's more, it's easier to do it together. And then it's good that they know who you are. And it helps every time. And I kind of have a funny story. I hope it doesn't take too much no, time. No, please, please. Both of this. But uh, so what, after a while, I did these tours. And some people suggested to me, and I'm not the best businessman, but I learned a lot from my uh, 
clients. And they said, why don't we do a custom tour? I said, custom tour? Yeah, we just want a more small personalized tour. Long story short, I end up with these three guys and we do a custom tour. And so I, the word go out and I keep doing that. So one year we were going to go from Cape Town to Paris. And this was pretty ambitious. It was because Nicholas, he won the Silk Road together with some other people. And three of them came together and said, we want to do this, Cape Town to Paris. What do you think, Helge? Okay. So we agreed to do it 115 days ahead of us. We take off from Cape Town. Three days into the tour, Nicholas crashed right in front of me. That's another story I could tell about um, and <laughs> stuff. But that was pretty dramatic. And he broke his uh, collarbone. And we had to ship the Frenchman back to Paris. Wow. And his bike. And that's very heavy. That's, that's tough when you are three guys, about four with me, and we are looking at that big of a trip. So it was very sad. So I thought, man, this guy invested not only money, but uh, psychological, uh, you know, thinking about the tour. And he was going to have the mayor in the town outside Paris where he lived, who was going to greet us when we came. So he had oh my. all of a sudden just fell apart. Wow. So he left, and I made up a little, not a little, like a poster-sized picture of him and laminated it. Uh, one picture I'd taken a few days before. So my thinking, and I talked to the two other guys, uh, so I said, let's take picture of uh, Nicholas everywhere we go. So, so he's kind of with us in spirit and send the pictures to him. So we did that. And I show this in one of my multimedia shows. It's kind of funny. You see him, you know, uh, he's on safari. So you get to get, and I also made up a little passport uh, for him, just a notebook. And I wrote Nicholas passport, a picture of him. And he was obviously not trying to imitate something. So every time I come on a border, and I'm not kidding you, every border we crossed from Cape Town to Paris, where we needed to go and stamp our passport. I got every custom officer, and sometimes they were not so willing, other times they thought it was hilarious, and they wrote, oh, so sorry about your accident, hope to see you one day, Nicholas stamp custom to Ethiopia, you know, and so on. Where I'm going with this story, I came to Sudan border, and they can be a little stiff there, a little difficult, nice, nice enough people, but it's culture and language. Anyway, so they kicked me around and said, no, you need to talk to the, the big guy, uh, the officer that was in charge of the border. So I kind of braved myself up and said, told him the story, and he thought he was hilarious. So he signed that and stuff. Forget about that. Two years later, we come, and one guy has just crashed, and we needed to park his bike there for having another guy that crashed another bike earlier to fly up and drive his bike to the border. Hmm. But you couldn't do that unless I came there to the border and I knew we could do this stuff. But hadn't I known, known this guy, he would, nobody would have done it. And he said, oh, hell, we got back with another <laughs> group. Oh, it's Nicholas, by the way. Oh, my goodness. Blah, blah, blah. And then I said, and by the way, we have this problem. Oh, no problem. You can park it here. And so I'm going to personally look after it. And when the driver comes, we're going to set them up. And blah. So a dilemma that and my clients were looking at me and saying, wow, 
You yeah. deserve some good connections. Yeah. And that's what it's all about. And it's about smiling and being open, being social. Mm-hmm. But sorry, that story took so much, but I, it's no. really a good example that something, when you put a good foot ahead and you don't know what, why you did it and what can come out of it and usually something more more good, as I say, no <laughs> comes out of it. No, that's a, that's a wonderful story. And let me just say, as a, uh, a little bit of a bookend there, what, what a nice thing you did for Nicholas um, to, to sort of bring him along on the trip, even though obviously he wasn't able to complete it. But what a nice memento, a thoughtful memento uh, that you created for him. And I'm not surprised to hear uh, how you have those connections and, and friends and relationships at the border as many times as you've uh, done that. We've teamed up with the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America to offer a special membership deal for our listeners. Now, before you think, wait a second, Darren, how much is this going to cost? Let's just stop right here and say it's free. This is a complimentary one-year digital membership for Airhead 247 podcast listeners. The MOA has a goal of adding 200 new members over the next several months. That's a lot. But I think they can reach that goal with our help. By supporting the MOA with this offer, you're also supporting this program. And let's say this again, it is free of charge. Visit 247.bmwmoa.org and complete the online form using the activation code AIRHEAD247. That's easy to remember. You'll receive your free one-year digital membership, and that will give our program credit for referring you. Or go to the description section of this podcast. We've got a direct link right there. Membership in the MOA offers discounts at hotels, a monthly magazine, great deals on roadside assistant programs, plus a fantastic network of BMW owners that share your passion. All this, plus you're supporting our efforts here with the podcast, bringing you unique insight into the world of the 247 Airhead. That website, once again, for your free one-year digital membership, 247.bmwmoa.org. Use the code AIRHEAD247. Thank you very much for your support. Back to our chat with Helga Peterson. Also, you know, I mentioned uh, in the questions uh, and topics I sent you, surely there are times where the guards, the officers are not as friendly and you just end up either having a real difficult time or sometimes you just end up having to slip them extra cash on occasion. I'm sure that's happened, no? Well, I, I don't like to bribe. And it's not that I'm cheap or don't want to let go of money. Sometimes I know it happens. Yeah. Like I said to my partner, if you have to do something, I don't want to know about it because I don't like to do it myself. And uh, I rather wait out or try to negotiate in some ways. Yeah, I understand some of them, you know, bribes and corruption can see, be seen in so many other, so many ways, you know. We think we don't have it in our society. Well, what is a lobbyist in Washington, D.C.? <laughs> you know, we should get into all of that kind of discussion. Excellent point, yes. Kurt, you know, when you're traveling, uh, what I would say connecting with, with what we just talked about, 
You're an ambassador, either you want it or not, for your own culture. You don't have a choice. When you come to a border in mm. Africa, South America, and Asia, you are seen as an American, as a European, wherever you come from. And they think that everybody from your culture behave, act the way you are doing. So you have a lot of responsibility there. So uh, sometimes you come to a border and they want something, and then you just be patient and perhaps wait it out. I waited, uh, stayed overnight when I traveled by myself. Mm just because they didn't, they wanted one way. And I say, you know, I can't really do that. I don't have, I'm not capable. And then I actually ended up making friends and ate dinner with them that evening. And then they sent me through next morning. <laughs> but when you are with a big group, yeah, you're right. It can be difficult. And I work with good partners. And that's one of the things I pride myself on for Globe Riders is we don't have a big flashy sprinter with the, posted Globe Riders World Tour company and we are all self-sustained. We do the opposite. We contract with local partners through bigger organizations, but we have local um, guide, Chase Vehicle, which has a lot of benefits. Sure. Chase Vehicle breakdowns, well, the driver, he has a cousin that lives in the next town up that have another we can, that he can help us with or know the mechanic, know the culture, know the language. Uh, the guides, English-speaking guides, they have pride in their country, so they will share with you what they did as a kid and up. It's not some guide, which can be also a good guide that have learned it through history books and studying and going to university. But even more so, I I like the ones that also educated, but that are proud of their country. If you get visit to your wherever you live and grew up I bet you that you are proud of where you grew up and the your neighbors and your friends and the nature there the culture there and will be the best ambassador for that area and that's what we want to hear and learn about yeah, that's a great point. Now, obviously, I've not traveled the miles and places you have internationally, but I have traveled some. And I've noticed that a few different places when we have enlisted tour guides, they are very proud of their local traditions, their local foods, uh, the, the bars uh, and things like that. I went to, uh, to Greece well, with my mother and wife, and uh, yeah. I have ancestors there. And the tour guides... Uh, we're just very effusive, uh, very friendly, and it was a great experience. I had never used a tour guide like that before, uh, but found it a really rewarding experience. And you, you do, as you say, you get to get to know the culture uh, a lot better that way. Uh, before we move on, I, would, I want to get, of course, uh, to some motorcycle talk and some airhead stuff. Uh, in discussing all this international travel, now we're not going to do a play-by-play -play or how-to uh, for somebody who's contemplating doing this on, on their own. But I'm curious about sort of your general overview for somebody who might be considering either shipping a bike, uh, which is what you guys do, uh, to a location internationally. What are some of the maybe common mistakes or just some tips, things people want to know when they're considering their visas and and bike shipping that that you've encountered over the years that you would pass on? Yeah, so there's a lot in, in shipping is a beast by itself. Yeah. Uh, 
Right today, I've been dealing with some of it. We have a container coming back from Mombasa, from uh, uh, our Africa tour, and it's now going close to three months. It should have been here in 45 days. Wow. Uh, one thing is when it's coming back. When I shipped to Africa for that tour, because it was going via China to Shanghai and going off the ship there, going over to another ship. So that's when you're shipping. You, you go to a shipping agency and you say, yeah, we can take it from there to there. Ask them how many transshipments it has. If you're on a time schedule, you know, the best thing is if you have a lot of time. So I gave me, myself two months extra because it was going off in Shanghai. And at that time, this was last spring in 2022, uh, you know, they had lockdowns in all over China and all of that. So I was a little paranoid that you were going to get stuck. And it made it. It actually won time. So it came two months early. But that's that's uh, much better than coming a month or 10 days late. So basically, if you're shipping by yourself and you're going some places, contact the shipping agents in your town or wherever you are. And then let's say they say it costs going to cost $5,000. Just say times two. It's just when you have a contractor at home, you're going to get some remodeling done. Yes. It's not a bad uh, rule of thumb is to say times two because they didn't tell you how much it's going to cost to receive at the other end. And they're always something, oh, by the way, we had to do this and it's going to cost extra. This mm-hmm. and that. So from my experience over 20 years doing this, it's very easy, times two. And uh, then you might have a couple of dollars left over, but uh, no no big surprises. Yeah, that's When it a... comes to paperwork, uh, yeah, you listen to your, go up. Online, you know, online today, you can learn so much. I'm just dealing now with the Carnet de Passage at Douane, which is an international mafia, I call them. <laughs> they issue a paper so you can travel from country to country. And just to give you an example, to my, uh, my customer in Germany, he is paying 370 euros to get that uh, Carnet. Here in the U.S., I have to pay over $1,000 to wow. get it. Wow. And I'm telling them, oh, it's just different rules, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you can't do nothing about it. So shop around, look around, educate yourself. There are lots of people traveling these days, and that's the huge advantage of having Google and going online and listening to what other people are doing. Yeah, great. Great tips there. Thanks for talking about that. All right, so let's change gears here a little bit. Um, I want to find out how you were introduced to motorcycles uh, as a youngster or when it was when you were living in Norway. Uh, I've visited with a lot of people uh, doing these interviews over the past year or so, and everybody seems to have an interesting story or experience that got them involved or interested in motorcycling. What Was there one for you? Yeah, well, my father used to have a Norton when he grew up. And then he met my mom, and on that one he had a floorboard uh, or something. No, no, it was a floorboard of a car that he crashed into and broke his ankle. Ankle, and that was kind of the short story of his motorcycle career. <laughs> so he really, he didn't mind me at all getting into motorcycling, but obviously my mom had the opposite <laughs> feelings about it. Uh, so when I got my first little Vespa scooter, it was a moped, a 
with a gear shifter, you know, on the hand. It was like three gears. Yep. Shift clutch. And uh, I remember I was so embarrassed because I had to wear a helmet. And that was, that was my hippie days. You know, I'm born in 55, so uh, uh, this is in the, the early 70s. I'm getting a bike. And, no, no. Yeah, end of 60s. Yeah, early 70s, yeah. Uh, and uh, I remember I, I hit that. I drove from home. I drove around the corner, and I had a rock where I put the helmet, and then I could take off and left all my curly hair. All <laughs> yeah, so uh, I I got my first little scooter, and then my friend uh, that was kind of my mentor, and uh, I looked up to always. All of a sudden, he ended up with an R90S, and it was like, oh, my gosh. I know I never can afford or get close to that, but that was such a cool bike. And then he helped me with, I got the Russian bike, an Ish 49, which had the gear shifter on the tank. It was a two-stroke. The passenger will sit a little higher behind you on the springy seat. Then I got the uh, Suzuki TT500, very long wheelbase, Mm -hmm. two-stroke again two-cylinder deal, and it was during a trip down to Italy, and I had many stories about that, one burning a hole in one piston piston and stuff going on the autobahn, but my point with the story is I came down to uh, Italy, and I was at uh, a motorcycle rally there, and here comes my friend from Oslo, another guy, and he said, Helge, you need to go back, buy the next one because he came on the first R80GS. This was 1981. There were two imported to Norway, and I was like, I need to get one of them. And that time, oh, by the way, that time I, no, I, I jumped a little too fast there. I had the R100-7 that I was riding on at that time. And uh, he said, you need to get the R80GS. And he was like, wow, I never knew that they were even coming out with a bike like that. And that's how I ended up with uh, my bike that I took around the world. Let's back up a second there. You mentioned the R100-7, and you had sent me a few uh, pictures of that, which were really neat, the black and white photos. And that was, so that was around, the, that was in the mid-70s sometime, uh, 77, 78 yeah. or something? Yeah, that was a 77 model, and uh, I had that till... Uh, 1980, I think, when I crashed that. And then uh, after that, I got the RATGS. Now, did you... That was the, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to ask, did you do some uh, touring? On, I mean, the, one of the photos you sent was at the top of a, a mountain somewhere in a, a snow-covered Alps or something like that. So you were starting to get your uh, travel, uh, your wanderlust and your travel legs on with the Slash 7. Uh, I uh, lived in northern Norway, and for those that are here in North America, and you know, uh, trip up to Prudhoe Bay is kind of an expedition in itself. Well, I lived up at 70 degrees north, and I worked for the rescue helicopter service as a photographer in Norway, and that's when I had a—I never had a car up till then, and uh, I had a snowmobile in the winter, and I have my R100 slash 7 for the summertime. So up there, you have midnight sun for two months. If you want to go for a ride, uh, 
one o'clock in the morning, well, the sun is still in your face. <laughs> so <laughs> it was a beautiful thing to do. And I wrote, don't to Christian Sun in Norway. And then I wrote, don't to Europe in the vacations and stuff. So I got to write a lot. But, you know, you get sun in the summer, but then you also don't see the sun for two months in the winter. Mm-hmm. And that's when I did the same thing that my good friend in uh, at home in Kristiansand in the south, he had done with his R90S. He had polished the engine block yes. and the shaft drive housing on the back. So I did the same with my R100-7, and I made it into an S. I got the S fairing. But as you saw in the pictures, and it looks like chrome on the engine block. And that was all hand-sanded. You couldn't use any machinery because it would cut too fast. I'm not good at this, but my friends told me, just use your hands, and I had two months with no sun, or what else to do there. <laughs> yeah. so much TV, fortunately. So. <laughs> but anyway, it, was, it ended up being a really beautiful bike. And then one day I picked up a uh, uh, hitchhiker. Well, he had broken down with a motocracy. I won the way to the BMW rally in Norway. I was one of many. We started uh, a BMW club there many years ago. So I won the way there, and I met this guy broken down from Denmark with a motocracy. And they have the same alternator as the BMW. That's so right. He tried to fix it all night, and he jumped on my, the back of my bike, and we drove, and I got the big puncture on the front tire and uh, we flew through the air and bike ended up in a potato field, planted the, <laughs> the wheels in the potato field, almost no harm to the bike and we were okay, got it up and uh, went up to the rally and after that I sold it for RATGS. Wow, wow, what a story. So yes, let, let's talk about the GS. So you mentioned uh, you were made aware of the introduction of that motorcycle. Uh, I guess that was right around the year it was coming out, the 81 or 82, is that right? Yeah, well, it was introduced, uh, if you look in the history book, uh, in September in France. In 1980, I think. Uh, yeah. 1980, correct. So, but it was not available for sale for the common people uh, like us in Norway and other places till 1981. So, uh, and I think it also just came with a kickstart in the beginning, and they found out that That's right. it's too hard to kickstart it, so you need to put the electric starter on too. So two of them were imported to Norway, and I bought uh, the second one there. Wow. And it was a big chunk of money for us, because in Norway we had almost 200% import tax on luxury vehicle, which that was considered. So... It was a big lift, but it was a fantastic opportunity because I was wondering what bike. I already decided to go to Africa on a motorcycle tour, and here it all came together. So what were your initial uh, impressions uh, when you got the bike? Uh, and what I'm curious, what did you sort of change, modify, or alter in, uh, in short order or during the first maybe year or so of your tenure of ownership uh, to get it kind of set up how you wanted it? Well, it started that I bought it with the intention of going to Africa the following year. So I had quit my job. My contract was up. I didn't want to renew it. So I went to southern Norway. 
I had that bike then, and together with my good friend that I keep referring to, Pelle, uh, we worked on the bike, and it was kind of funny. He just got married, had his first kid, and I was helping him with the foundation of his house, literally. I was camped with my, uh, my tent there and the bike. So one day we were doing uh, cement work and hard labor, building up the foundation and starting on his own. Uh, in the evening or when we had time in between, we were welding the, sub, the subframe of the bike because he wanted to make it stronger. This, he is a very, very, very smart engineer. He was working on the early days on the engineering of the platforms in uh, the North Sea for the oil drilling. So think about it. This is 1981, and he was putting into his CAD program or whatever it was called, and he say, okay, we're going to imitate that your R-80 is flying five meters up in the air and landing, <laughs> and these boxes we are putting on here, uh, we're going to have some shock absorber there, and this bolt, 10-millimeter bolt, it's going to be the first that break because in a system you always have to have a fuse and that's oh. your fuse. They yeah. don't break the whole frame and all of that. I first became a regular customer with Boxer 2 Valve a few years ago when refreshing an R90S. William and Edward Plam's video repair series, well, that was a go-to reference. It made that job and repair session much easier and really an enjoyable process. Boxer 2 Valve carries only the highest quality parts, mainly manufactured by OEM suppliers, so the fit is perfect and the repair, well, it's done just one time. Fitment and applications for all parts are clearly listed. To quickly find what you need, you simply enter your year and model of your bike and you'll see only the parts that fit. Shipping, that's always fast, with most orders going out that day at 2 p.m., and shipping is available to all parts of the globe. Boxer 2 Valve carries a wide variety of premium special tools and maintenance items, many of those unique to their catalog. William and Edward and the team at Boxer 2 Valve are Airhead fans, and as they say, with a passion for simpler times and uncomplicated machines. Check them out for all your parts needs, boxer2valve.com. That's the number two, boxer2valve.com. Back with Helge in a bit, but now it's time to welcome back William Plam from Boxer 2 Valve for another Tech Talk episode. You know it, you love it. It's the Airhead 247 transmission. Back on the line with William Plam from Boxer 2 Valve and always fun to talk a little tech. And today our subject is transmissions. And for the new Airhead owner, let's just start out this way, William. If you're getting an Airhead for the first time, the four-speed or five-speed transmission on a 247 feels much differently in feel and function than most other bikes of its era, does it not? Oh, there's no doubt about it. It's um, it, It's just by its very nature, a completely different uh, arrangement than most other motorcycles. Being a dry clutch, uh, most uh, if you're comparing it to other motorcycles that have a, a wet clutch and the and the uh, the gears are lubricated or in the same housing essentially as the rest of the motor, it it, it gives a completely different shift feel. It's a lot more mechanical um, than the other bikes. It is. I mean, if you think about Japanese bikes from that era. 
uh, the, I mean, the shifting is, it's, it's completely different. Let's just put it that way. I don't want to say that it's better or worse or one of the two, but uh, it's noticeably different. And uh, I've read on Adventure Rider or other forums where people will get an airhead for the first time and they're, they're saying, what's wrong with my transmission? Um, and it's probably, yeah. it's probably nothing. You're just having to get used to it. Um, yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, so, um, we can maybe talk a, a little bit more about some intricacies here as we go on, but let's just for the, uh, two, four, seven run, we started out with the four speed kicker, uh, on the slash five series. And I had a, a 75 slash five, uh, with the four speed kicker and a couple here's a couple of things I noticed about it. Now it's been 20 years since I've had that bike. But I do remember these two things distinctly about it. One, the Kickstarter seemed to work uh, <laughs> compared to later models. Uh, I don't know why. And then secondly, uh, the third gear in that bike, uh, in that transmission, was just really great. I mean, it was perfect for sort of twisty roads, you know, riding anywhere from 45 to 60 miles an hour. There was a real nice range uh, in there. I really enjoyed it. And I guess... 2B or 2A here would be, and again, this is just my experience, it seemed to be a little bit more of a stable platform. You didn't hear the issues obviously do with the circlip or shift dogs or different problems uh, with the later model five speeds. Just talk a little bit about your take on those early four speeds with the kicker. Well, they were very similar in, in, in many ways to the gearbox from the R60s and, and what have you, or the pre, pre-1970 bikes, Sash 2s and all those, the, the, the way that the, um, the shift mechanism works and all is very similar. So I think that it was, a, it was, it was a very tried and tested, robust design. Um, that, that they, that, and then when they, the five-seed was, was completely new, it was a d- d- departure from what they'd been doing for the last... 30 who knows how many years. And then, uh, you know, whenever you have a new thing, you, you get kind of weirdness. But I think that's why they were so, so uh, robust, because it was, it was basically just a repackaged gearbox from the previous time. Yeah, I mean, again, my comment here and then your take if I'm off base here, but I, I found when, um, if, for instance, if my battery was low or I left the headlight on, which... You, or the ignition on, which you can do in a slash five. If you forget to pull the plunger key out, that will happen. Um, I found that the Kickstarter just seemed to work a little bit better than it does uh, on the five speeds. Why? I don't know. Uh, I just had better luck with it. It seemed to be just a better functioning uh, unit for whatever reason. Maybe that was just my experience. Well, when you when you kickstart the, the, either one of those bikes, you're basically you know I- introducing a... Um, a cam or with, or with some teeth on it to to manually rotate the gearbox and thereby the motor. And I believe that the I don't know this for a fact, but I believe that when you, in that action of doing so, that you achieved a higher engine speed, a higher crankshaft turning speed with the same kick shaft motion on the four speed than you do on the five speed. And I think that might be why it's oh. easier, easier to um, start because you're actually getting just a little bit more spin on it. Interesting. So maybe just the way it's geared uh, yeah. was an uh, advantage there. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, because 
You know, I've got a kicker on my GS, on my first generation GS, and I, I bear. I mean, I don't use it because I know that the internal shaft can get bent and that kicker can sort of poke out and rub against your shin. So it's really an emergency use only. Um, but it, I did seem to use it more on the on the slash five and never really had any problems with it. So. All right, that's just my. Yeah, there's another another thing too. You know, when you're talking about the the early uh, GS with the electronic ignition, yeah, that 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 that's actually a thing too because you, you've got that 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 hall sensor and oh yeah, I you know, and so you, you with the with the points ignition, it it, it you, you know it'll spark even if you're just like turning it by hand. You know, you've seen that and. Uh, with the with the hall sensor, you got to get that thing spinning. So they're just it's at a disadvantage for starting with the kicker. It's really it's great for adjusting the valves. It's pretty much yeah. Right for. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good point. That seems to be what I use it the most for. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, just tapping it down and and watching the uh, uh, OT come into the window uh, on exactly. the on the five speed. So when that first came out uh, in the slash slash six series uh there was some problems if i'm remembering with that a just partly because it was a whole new design and uh at things that come uh with a new design and a new operational system but I, again i'm struggling to try to remember but i want to say there were some parts on, on those first ones on the input shafts uh, or part of the gear, um, my terminology's poor, so excuse me here, but the shafts where I guess the gears uh, line up on, that uh, these days, if you're trying to replace those or if you wanted to rebuild an early five-speed gearbox, some of those parts aren't available. They were specific to that one year. And so that gearbox was then later updated in the 75 model uh, and onward. So do you recall what the issues were with those first uh, five speeds? Yeah, so the, the, I think that the changes were might have come later. Maybe there was one before then, but basically there's a, a helical cut gear on the input shaft, and that's where, where all the power is transmitted through. So it's a very important part. And it has also, um, there's like a cam on the uh, mechanism that's, it's not. It's not part of the gear, but it it um, it basically has a little bit of a cush drive effect on it. It's basically two two ramps uh, moving against each other against the spring, and and so as these two ramps work against each other, it compresses the spring, and and it, it is there to keep it from like if you if you do a misshift and you know from things just actually exploding in there. Now that gear that that transmits all the power off the input shaft was originally cut at 15 degrees, and that proved to be less than ideal. Um, and they used to they would break and they would wear out prematurely and all that. And so they changed the cut of the gear to 17.5 degrees, and I think that was in sometime in the early 80s. Is oh, okay. And you can tell if you've got the updated gears without having to figure out if it's 15 or 17. If they put a little X on the gears. That's right. Stamped it in there. So if you've got an older gearbox, let's say a slash six, and that gear is bad, yes, you need to upgrade all the components to the 17.5 millimeter 
or 17.5 degree, I'm sorry, um, version of the gear. And that means you need to get the, the mating gear uh, on, the, um, on the intermediate shaft, I believe it is. And so there, it gets a little bit more complicated and expensive, um, but it's something that can be done. Parts are available to make that happen. Okay, yeah, that, that's good to know. That's good to know. Uh, so, yeah, if you've got a 74-slash-6 uh, gearbox and you start having some issues, there, just be aware that's probably what you're going to be looking at if you're getting into a repair scenario. Exactly, and it's a it's a it's a, a matter of changing out a few gears, actually. So it's it, it's, but it's doable. Okay, uh, so the later as those transmissions progressed uh, through the slash six slash seven series, and then into the eighties, uh, and towards the end of the run in the nineties, there were incremental changes. Uh, the first one you mentioned was the cut of the gear. There, uh, also we started to see instead of a smooth case, uh, a ribbed or webbed case, and I guess that was just to promote cooling? I think it was to strengthen it. Okay. I don't think it was cooling. Okay. I think it was just because the original case was kind of uh, not not really strong for higher performance. So they, I think those ribs were added to, to make the case more uh, stronger. The other really important part, aside from the gearbox, the change made to the flywheel, and, the, and, and of course, you know, that happened in 1981. They had the, the previous bikes had that big, heavy steel um, flywheel and the and the older version clutch, and that changed uh, in '81, and that that have really affected the the transmission too, and and the way that it shifted. I think because you had a lot less uh, spinning mass with that with that new clutch arrangement. Uh, the clutch was a lot lot lighter pull. Um, the shift quality, I think, improved on the later models because of the, not so much the change made to the gearbox, but because of the lighter flywheel. Yeah, and speaking of that, I, I noticed this um, on my uh, first generation GS, on the R80 GS, that the flywheel was sort of, if I'm remembering, was it two parts? And then sort of uh, uh, the teeth ring uh, was one part and then the sort of internal part of it was riveted together uh and which would made it a two-part or two-piece sort of flywheel and those had those can and i think over time those rivets can get loose and cause some uh you know additional noise uh in your sort of resting transmission when you're running am i am i right there yeah i have i have heard about that so you're talking about the 81 on yeah now, yeah right yeah so you know, it, to even call that thing a flywheel is kind of like, uh, like maybe I, I I refer to it as a clutch carrier. Yeah, that's you're right. That's what it is in the parts fish too. I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's not. It doesn't really have it. Your flywheel mass is is made up of the component the the um of all of those components of, you know, the, the, the pressure plates, the spring and the, uh, and the clutch carrier. And that's, that, that's, it's effectively all of those parts make up the flywheel mass and it's much lighter than the old style. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I've seen yeah, some could come loose and you could, the clutch carrier is a, is a, is a replacement item. It's something that, you know, you need to look at too. It is. Yeah. In fact, I think, um, 
I think I'm approaching that. I think I'm noticing some uh, new noises down there. So that might be something I have to look into at some point. Uh, Also, with the five-speed, so some other things we saw over the years that changed. uh, Instead of a direct shift lever uh, on the left side, uh, they went to one uh, that had the additional, oh, what do I want to say, linkage. Uh, so yeah. the 78, they introduced a new style linkage, uh, and then sort of that got refined and changed over the years. Do you really notice a big difference, uh, with that additional linkage? I mean, I guess you're getting, uh, as we know with that, basically mechanical leverage, uh, to help ease the, the shifting. I don't know that I've noticed a big deal. I've got bikes that, you know, I've got a 77 that's still the old direct link, uh, direct shifter, and then the 78 that's got the linkage. Same with the R80 uh, GS, it's got a linkage. Um, do you notice a big difference on that? Was that a big help? Uh, I don't know that it was, and I don't know that it was actually introduced uh, to increase or change the shifting, but rather to move the foot pegs back a little bit. Okay, all right. So it was uh, from an uh, ergonomics standpoint. Yeah. It was like we're not gonna we're gonna move we need to move these pegs back a little bit. We're not changing the gearbox, so how are we gonna do that? So they put the linkage in there, but it's a one to it appears to be a one to one ratio. Right. If you look at the linkage, so mechanically it shouldn't really have any effect on on anything. That's just something else that wears out. Those balls, <laughs> the little the, the the little balls wear out. The shift linkage is something to always look at replacing too because the, it, it, there's a lot of wear there. It's an often under-noticed area of maintenance requirements. You need to really take that thing apart, clean those balls once in a while, make sure that the the, the ball sockets are clean, and uh, put some grease in there. You know, that's that's definitely not a install it and forget about it part. That's a a regular maintenance item to take that off and clean it and lubricate it. Okay, well, I can't pass this up, but essentially, Willem, you're reminding everybody to clean their balls. Yeah, well, that's, that's exactly something like that. <laughs> but that goes without saying, right? <laughs> um, you know, the, the other really important thing that changed it was the, uh, the, the the profile of the shift cams on the shift mechanism. Okay, all right. Um, that, that, gosh, I want to say that that was somewhere in the early 80s also when they did that. Maybe around the same time as they went from the flywheel to the um, clutch carrier type uh, clutch arrangement. And if you look at the the shift mechanism and you take it out of the gearbox, you'll see that it's got basically a series of hills and valleys right. where the the shift um, cam or there's like a little um, pawl that that snaps in the gear. The the original ones were really very flat. And so you could get a situation where if you weren't really shifting all the way through, it would stick in between gears. It would not. It wouldn't know whether the snap, you know, the left or the right, but it would stay in the middle. So what they did later on was they redesigned the profiles of those cams so they're very steep and very pointy. So it's either going to go one way or the other. There's no way for it to, to, for you to get that misshift. So you can upgrade it. You can you can take an old bike from the early mid 70s and you can put the newer version um, shift shift mechanism in there many years ago BMW actually offered it as a kit it was called the shift kit 
and it came with the, all the necessarily necessary parts and and of course a new spring because there's that spring on the pole that can break and if that does break then that's all no I'm 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 kind of rambling on here but anyway yeah that's okay the shift <laughs> the, um, the shift um, up kit upgrade you'll see it in older bikes because we were putting those in a lot on you know, many years ago. Now that kit's no longer available, you have to get the parts individually, but they're all still available, and it's um, a, definitely, a, a, if you've got, if you take a gearbox apart and you've uh, got the old-style shifter in there, you'd be well advised to put the newer components in there. Yeah, uh, I should mention on uh, one of your videos, when you do the uh, transmission rebuild, uh, I can't remember if it was the Slash 6 or the uh, the R80, uh, uh, conversion or uh, custom one you did, but you covered that pretty extensively in one of those videos I remember. And then also the other thing I think, again, is there was a, a sort of plastic bushing uh, in there that was often replaced with a, a metal uh, one with a geared bushing in it. Am, am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, there's there, there's um, that, that shift, Paul, that it's basically a spring-loaded little arm with a with a roller on it yes the roller and that's what that's what positions the um the gearbox into whatever gear you've selected and they were just like a nylon uh sort of disc and you know i'm probably worked fine but over time they 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 get bad and we we found that the better way to uh go is to install an actual roller bearing of the same diameters yep so it had the same inside and outside diameters, but it's a physically a roller bearing, and so it it's really it increases the uh, shift quality. And that's all the bikes. and that's something you've got available on Boxer two valve. Oh yeah, okay, absolutely. yeah. Yep. I, I, and we should mention here, you know, talking about the shift kit and the Paul and the valleys and and all those things. Uh, Anton Largedere has a great webpage uh, on that. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but uh, he goes through a pretty good explanation of. Uh, how that's changed over the years, and and sort of what what's available uh, to to modify for specific years and those sort of things. I think I've had. And, well, let's just say if you're having a transmission rebuilt, that's definitely something you want to have done as part of the process. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, then and go if, ahead. If I if we have time, just real yeah. quick about that little spring, you know. So there, there's a, there's that 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 uh, the spring on that that pole we've been talking about has a roller on the end. It's it has to be uh, applied, you know, with tension, and it's it's put in there in such a way that if is that um, there there's a so so there's that part that there's the um, the part that actually makes the shift uh, occur in there is 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 that pole and it has a spring on it and. That it's just a little tiny spring, and sometimes that spring will break. And if it does break, it's you're going to be stuck in whatever gear you're in. Um, so it's like I like to say, like rolling a die. You know, one out of six. It could be neutral, it could be fifth, it could be second. When it breaks, <laughs> that's the gear you're in. And um, and anyway, it happens. But the little spring breaks. They're like three about three or four dollars. But you know, you have to take the gearbox apart. You know. I'm just going to tell you all about a tool that we have that we we import a little guy a guy that makes um, these in uh, in in Germany. He's down in, in actually in, in southern Bavaria, and it's called the gear shifter tool. I'm not trying to you know plug anything, but it's just kind of a cool thing. It is. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned this. Yes. 
Yeah, it's um, it's it'll fit in your toolkit, and if you um, if that spring breaks on you, you'll know because your shifter just goes up up and down, full range of motion and does nothing, and then you know what the deal is. And so with this tool, you t- you take the filler plug out of the gearbox and you can put the tool in. And, and it's designed so that you can push that pawl back up to where, you know, in, in lieu of the spring, basically replacing the spring momentarily. And at least you can select a gear that you can work with, like, say, third gear. Yeah. Because third gear, you know, you, it, your clutch isn't going to be too happy with you, but you can get it going in third gear. <laughs> yeah, that's it, right. And you can attain a, a, a reasonable speed in third gear. If you're in, in fifth gear, your hose. If you're in first gear, neutral, we know what the outcome there is. But anyway, it's kind of a cool thing to have along because... You never know when that thing's going to break, and I mean, you can always. Now, it was more important in the old days when we didn't have cell phones, because um, you needed to take care of yourself and more than you do today. But uh, it is nice to be able to to, to, to take uh, matters in your own hand, at least get back to town or whatever. Yeah, I was. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. I had made a note to say that's on, on Boxer Two Valve dot com, and for those who like to. Prepare for any inevitability, uh, breakdown, or like to you know really pack and prepare. That's a good little thing to toss in, in the uh, in the tool tray. Doesn't take up a whole lot of space, and and it's there. It's one of those things, probably, William. If you buy it, you'll never need it. Exactly. Right. So, what, a high likelihood that that'll be true. Yep. But it's not not. It's, it's a nice thing to have along. It is. Okay. And lastly. Uh, no need to uh, beat the dead horse here, but I do just want to get your opinion on the so-called circlip debate, uh, especially on the later transmissions. Um, <clears throat> we I've talked with a lot of people about you know why the circlip might have been deleted, um, and what generally speaking is it a ticking time bomb or not? So, what are your thoughts on those? Two aspects. First, why did do you know why it disappeared? Eventually, I think it made it back in in the late late model runs. And then, secondly, uh, is this something if you've got uh, a bike of that era, do you need to pull the transmission immediately and do it, or what? What's uh, the worry level uh, for somebody on that? Well, I, I I think that it was probably something that they they just decided that for some reason they didn't need. And that was probably a mistake. It was, it was a good idea to have that. It's always good to keep keep the, the, the uh, bearing you know captive and not allow it to wander, which is basically what happens when that clip is not in place. Right. And it's probably likely that some people will go through and and you know for decades without that that clip and everything will be fine. It has probably has something to do with the individual tolerances of. The shaft and the bearing, you know, and 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 whether whether it the thing's going to start to wander or not. Um, I don't think that I would recommend that you need to take the gearbox apart to look and see if that thing's there or not. But in any case, whenever we have a gearbox apart for any reason, we we go ahead and if it doesn't have the groove, we cut it in and we put the clip in place. Sure, sure. Is Just, there is there a tell is there a telltale sign that? Um, if you, for instance, if you put it in gear on the center stand and spin the wheel, would, would you hear some, uh, unfriendly noises? Would you notice performance? Uh, what, what kind of things would indicate that that might be becoming an issue? I'll be perfectly honest with you. I don't really remember what the, what the symptoms of that are. Yeah. 
I, I don't either. But yeah, or if there even really are any, I don't know. Someone else will know that I'm that one. I'm not going to try to tell you anything that I don't know 100 percent true. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, suffice to say, as as we mentioned here at the top, uh, the Airhead transmission is unique. Uh, it has its foibles and its design flaws. However, the good thing to know is parts are available. There's plenty of experts out there who can service them, uh, get them back into shape. And that's really, again, one of the beautiful things about these bikes is uh, there's great third-party uh, parts and service uh, to help get you back on the road if you got some issues. So, William, once again, a great chat on transmissions. We'll look forward to catching up with you next time. Darren, a pleasure as always. Thanks so much. Have a good one. Thanks, as always, to William for his great insight and conversation and to the whole crew at Boxer 2 Valve. Now back to our chat with Helga. And you mentioned the other day you were going someplace to straighten a frame. That's right, yeah. Yeah, that's not easy, huh? No, no. And, yeah, as a matter of fact, you know, just as a side note, yeah, um, that was a, it was a pretty big process. Now, the nice thing about that was they were able to do it, you know, mostly with the bike intact. The engine didn't have to come out. Uh, and oh, really okay. just, just the front end was removed, um, which mm-hmm. wasn't a whole lot of work, but there's a little bit involved there. Then they have sort of what looks like a medieval torture device, uh, a jig that they put the, the bike in, uh, some hydraulic arms. And in this case, the bike had a hard pull to the right, so they ended up heating the down, oh. heating the down tube up on the right side, getting it glow glow red, and then using oh. the hydraulic arms to sort of push push everything back uh, into alignment into a center plane. And the guys have been doing this for twenty years, and they just did a fan, they did a fantastic job, and were even able to sort of paint. Uh, the frame where they had heated it, they've done this enough. They just did a great job, job touching it up. And as a matter of fact, Helge, I wrote it for the first time today since uh, since the repair. Wow. Yes, and it, it's night and day. I mean, they just did a, a wonderful job. And just say uh-huh. this, yeah, parenthetically, for anybody uh, who has an accident like that or if you find a motorcycle that's been accident damaged but is not too terribly bad, there are it can be done and, and quite effectively. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, I heard that most people you hear that do these things, they just go and buy a new frame and kind of like, you know, that's a write-off, uh, that's too hard and stuff. So that's good to know that somebody actually know their trade, huh? Yeah, yeah, that's pretty amazing. Pretty pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, it was about it was about $1,000 for the job, which, you know, okay. I, I guess yeah. if you think if you're, and this was on a, a 77 uh, S, so you know that's a one one year model only bike. It's kind of unique in the BMW lineup. So I thought it was worth uh, the time and effort to save it and keep the frame and uh, engine numbers matching and all those kind of things. But I want to get back to that story you were alluding to there. So you were fine. You were identifying potential weak points uh, on the GS. Well, we're going to hit pause and leave it there for this week. More with Helga next time. A reminder, his book, 10 Years on Two Wheels, is available through the Touratech website. Until next time, so long, everybody.
The Airheads 247 podcast is distributed and produced by From Off Productions. Our producer engineer is Jeff Glover. I'm Darren Dorton. Look forward to catching up with you next time. Thank you.